Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 38. Jesus is speaking. But I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some years ago, the writer Jonathan Franzen expressed concern about the way Facebook has transformed the verb to like, from a state of mind to an action you perform by clicking a mouse. His concern was that this reveals a tendency in our culture to substitute an easy kind of liking for the more difficult task of loving. Liking... By and large, it's a positive feeling. Love, on the other hand, costs us. It is messy and complicated. To love someone is to risk being vulnerable with them. Love, writes Franzen, is about bottomless empathy, born out of the heart's revelation that another person is every bit as real as you are. The words and actions of Jesus reveal that he was someone who loved deeply and suffered the consequences. Seeking out the lonely and the lost, calling disciples to leave their families and livelihoods to follow him, preaching a message of uncompromising demands. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Lend, expecting nothing in return. Do not judge. Forgive. Jesus may not have known much about the superficial Facebook style of liking, but he knew all there is to know about what author Alice Siebold describes as getting down into the pit and loving somebody. This is the kind of love Paul describes 
in that famous passage to the church in Corinth that Wilson read today. Maybe you've seen the movie The Wedding Crashers. It's about two friends who show up uninvited to weddings as a way to pick up women. In one of the early scenes, they're at a wedding when the pastor announces that the bride's sister will now read the scripture lesson. One of these friends says quietly to the other, $20, 1 Corinthians. His friend replies, double or nothing, Colossians 3.12. The bride's sister announces, and now, a reading from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. It should come as no surprise that many couples choose 1 Corinthians 13 to be read at their weddings. It is an extraordinary description of love. It's also relatively safe for the kind of diverse crowd that shows up for a wedding, since it doesn't mention God or Jesus. But it is safe to say that the Apostle Paul would be shocked if he discovered that of all his writings, this passage is probably the best known because it is so often read at weddings. Paul would be shocked because what inspired him to write these words was not romantic love or even the love he felt for God. Paul wrote these words to counsel the Corinthian church on what should govern their life together. The church in Corinth needed Paul's counsel because it was struggling. Although these people had come together to follow Jesus, the one who preached love and forgiveness, they had quickly reverted to the norms of their culture, judging one another according to wealth and social status, dividing into factions and jockeying for power. When Paul heard this, he was dismayed, and he wrote this letter to help set the Corinthians back on the right path and to help them deal with their conflict. In this letter, Paul explains that Christian community has no place for hierarchy because God has given every person gifts that are vital to ministry. Paul uses the metaphor of the church as the body of Christ with every member equally important. And he explains that the foundation of this community is love. Jesus' love, love that is self-giving, self-sacrificing, love that is revealed in how we treat one another. Now, at this point, you might be thinking that it's only my third Sunday here, and already I'm preaching a sermon about conflict in the church. Well, I want to assure you, I'm not talking about this because I've uncovered some deep-seated struggle here at First Presbyterian. On the contrary, I continue to be incredibly impressed with your faithfulness and your competence as you live out your vision to inspire, nurture, and serve God's people. But my years in ministry and my reading of the book of Acts and all of Paul's letters to the early churches have taught me that no matter how faithful or competent a church appears to be, there are always issues, whether under the surface or right on top, that present challenges and opportunities. This has been the case for every church 
since the very beginning. The Apostle Paul quickly discovered that when you bring people together, even with Jesus as foundation and guide, differences and sometimes disagreements will be inevitable. So whatever differences and disagreements arise here, and they have, I've read the history, and they will, Paul's advice is advice we can use. And this advice is that nothing in our lives, not our gifts and skills, not our wealth and status, not our degrees and awards, none of it matters if we are not grounded in love, the love of God revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And nothing in our life together as a church, not our mission spending or our wonderful preschool or our beautiful building or our excellent music, none of it matters if we do not allow God's love to move among us and flow through us into God's world. As the independent religious scholar Diana Butler Bass traveled around the country doing research, she discovered that churches everywhere are going through a transformation. For almost 2,000 years, Christians have envisioned themselves as occupying the middle tier of a three-tiered universe— God lives above us in heaven in this conception. We are on earth, and below us is where we hope we will not go when we die. In this conception, God is wholly other, set far apart from the world and from humanity. And the church serves as a kind of mediator between heaven and earth. Butler Bass describes the church actually as an elevator. But in the last century, this understanding has broken down. Two horrific and devastating world wars, the free love of the 60s, the free spending of the 80s, the rise of terrorism and the breakdown of civil discourse, have all revealed just how inadequate this view is. As a result, Many people have turned away from institutional religions and the churches that represent them. Fortunately for us here, there are many people who still find value and solace and meaning in the church, in this church. But we are nevertheless called to ask where we fit in to this changing understanding of who God is and what it means to be God's church. Butler Bass believes that this transformation is as significant as the Protestant Reformation of 500 years ago. And it is incredibly challenging to be a part of it, because during this kind of transformative moment, the future feels totally uncertain. What are we supposed to hold on to? when it feels like everything we know and trust is no longer viable. My friends Mac and Katie have been asking that same question for a different reason. Several years ago, the oldest of their four children revealed that she is transgendered. Born and raised as a boy, she came to the awareness that she identifies as a female. Here is what Katie wrote 
about that experience. As parents, we have had to face head-on our fear of the unknown. There is no way for any parent to imagine, even from the first moment of a pregnancy, what might unfold in the years that will follow. We really do sign up for this when we give ourselves over to the miracle of new life. We really do sign up for the unknown. Our family is on a lifelong journey now to understand what it means to raise a human being living as the opposite gender from which they were born. We must continue to answer the question, how do we parent a child who believes their soul does not match their physical body? Time and again, as we have navigated this change, we have tried to use unconditional love as our touchstone and our faith in God as our foundation to help us answer that question. What would it look like in this time of great uncertainty for the church, for our church with all its gifts and resources, to use unconditional love as our touchstone and our faith in God as our foundation? Faith, hope, and love abide, Paul writes, and the greatest of these is love. If love is our touchstone and faith is our foundation, might we discover hope for our future? For years, whenever I officiated a wedding where 1 Corinthians 13 was the scripture, I struggled to preach on this passage that doesn't seem to say much about God. But a few years ago, a couple I was marrying decided to use 1 Corinthians 13 paired with a verse from 1 John chapter 4, God is love, and those who love abide in God, and God abides in them. That provided the connection I needed. The love Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians isn't just a gift from God or even an example God sets for us. This love is God with us. God among us, working through us. When we love one another, even when our love doesn't quite match the lofty description Paul has here, when we love one another, we reveal and receive God. This is what Jesus promises his disciples. The love you give is the love you will get Because true love, love that does not judge, love that forgives, is God with you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. For the love you give is the love you get. So now, in every wedding, I remind the couple that the love they share is no less than God with them. And although their love may evolve over time, God's presence remains constant. As Paul writes, love never ends. I remind couples of this because I know that in every relationship there comes a moment where both parties have to make a choice. The choice of whether to remain in that relationship even when it no longer provides that intoxicating hit of romantic love. When that time comes, I want them to remember God's presence and God's love 
the only love which never fails. There is no question that the church around the country, around the world, is in a difficult time in our love affair with God. The way we once mediated between heaven and earth is no longer working or appreciated. We can no longer expect people to come through our doors or any church doors out of a sense of obligation. Butler Bass writes that in most traditional churches, people are vacillating between nostalgia for the past, the way things used to be, and anxiety about the future, what is going to happen to us. Because of that focus on the past and on the future, we miss out on the chance to experience God with us in the present, right here, right now. And according to Jesus and the Apostle Paul, the most effective way to experience God's presence in the present is by loving one another the best that we can. Loving those around us in any given moment, regardless of who they are. Loving those who may never come through our doors, even though many of them are longing for God. Loving our city, not just as we hope and dream it could be, but as it is right now, with its poverty and inequality and political and racial conflict, we can choose love, trusting that it is worth the mess and the complication, the risk and the challenges, because when we love, we know God. Kate Braystrup's kids were playing in the backyard with her cousin George when he used gasoline to ignite a pile of brush. The gasoline exploded into a fireball that badly burned all three of them. In a panic, Braystrup got them into the car and started driving to the hospital while calling 911. She writes, George was cursing and crying because his burns hurt and because he knew that the fire that had injured these children was his mistake, his fault. He was the adult who had used gasoline to start a fire, and his was the hand that had struck the match. Are they breathing, the dispatcher said, and I held up the cell phone. George, beside me in the passenger seat, said, Oh my God, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. Zach was sitting behind him in the back seat. In the middle of his own loud litany of, Oh God, Zach leaned forward. He reached out with his burned arm, an arm blistering and shredding before my eyes, and he put his burned hand on George's shoulder. It's all right, George, he said. We love you. If you are living in love, writes Braystrip, you are in heaven, no matter where you are. Amen.